Good morning again. Our ushers are coming to take the offering. For those of you who are regular around here, you can give as the Lord leads you. If you've got your Bible with you, open up to Isaiah 56, and we are doing our third week in Isaiah 56 through 59, and we're going to hit the ground running just to kind of catch you up in a very short way. If you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, we been going through the book of Isaiah. And if you remember in Isaiah 53, what we saw is that Jesus, Isaiah 53 is all about Jesus and his sufferings and how he came and paid the price for our sins so that we might be, as we just sung about, we, we might be renewed and reconciled to God. And then in Isaiah 53, that's what we're hearing about. And then in Isaiah 55, what we get is this beautiful invitation from God saying, now because of what Jesus has done, you have an invitation to my table. Come and partake of the richest of food without any cost. Come and partake in, in good drink without any cost. Come have a place at my table. And what we're meant to understand is that the work of Isaiah 53 has made available the invitation of Isaiah 55. And now as we get into Isaiah 56, 57, 58, 59, what we're finding is that he now turns his attention to his people and he says, those of you who have received this invitation, I want you to live that out in a certain way by becoming a countercultural counter family of people, a community of faith that lives in such a way that you look different from the world around you. And as you look different than them, you will become increasingly effective at inviting them to my table where I have invited them, according to Isaiah 55. So does that make sense? That flow of reasoning, Isaiah 53 is the work that's done to make the invitation of Isaiah 55 available. And then chapters 56 through 59 are there to teach us what a community of people, a group of people who believe in what took place in Isaiah 53, the suffering of the Son of God, and the invitation of God in Isaiah 55, believe we've received that, how we then should live. And so we've identified, we've been looking at it with a special eye to the realities of our cultural time and place, our cultural moment, and the, con uh, the understanding that we, we live in a certain context. And if the point of these chapters is to teach us what a group of people uh, should look like in order to be effective at inviting others to come into to, to come to the table of God. If that's what these chapters are meant to show us, then what we need is some understanding of our context and how it shapes our understanding of how to make that invitation, yes? And so we've been talking about the idea that we live in a culture that is marked by these things, relativism, individualism, materialism, racial division, and sexual freedom of expression, which goes beyond the boundaries of what God has prescribed for us and for flourishing in that area of life. So we kind of had our eye on those things and thinking about the things that we see now in these chapters and how they really do transcend uh, just the context of the ancient Near East where Isaiah is writing them and really speak directly into our day and age. I'm not gonna go back over the ones we've covered, but we, we identified eight things that essentially mark a church uh, that would be effective in that type of cultural context at making that Isaiah 55 invitation to come to the table of God by becoming countercultural as a community. And here's the question. I'm just gonna put it right out in front for you. The question I want you to be asking and the question I want to be asking of myself is, of these things, which am I specifically called to help our church become? Which am I uniquely equipped and gifted and skilled to help our church become? And which am I hindering our church from becoming? 
and to be honest about my attitudes, my thoughts. I don't just mean I'm preventing by partaking of actions and activities that are somehow preventing it. My guess is most of you would look at the list and go, I'm not doing anything to counter that. But the question is, are there things in my attitudes, in my reasoning, in my mode of life that might be prohibiting my church family from becoming the type of church family that God is calling us to become? Is that a fair question for us to ask? Yes? Okay, well, it's fair or not, I'm asking it. So we're going there, all right? So let's dive right in. So we're picking up with number four. If you've picked up the sermon notes on the way in or if you wanna grab them on the way, they've got the full list of eight. I'm not gonna recap all those because we're covering five of them today. I know there have been some bets as to whether or not I would be able to cover all five. And you're only gonna be here 30 minutes late to make sure that we can do that. So don't worry. No one, no one said anything in the oven, did they, for Father's Day? All right, number four. Number four, be diverse in race, age, and economic standing. Be diverse in race, age, and economic standing. Look at Isaiah 56, verse three. And I remind you, and we've been coming back a lot to Isaiah 56 because it really, it sets the stage for all of Isaiah 56 through 59. And so, you know, we keep coming back to it, but just I, I want you to have your eyes on it and remember that at the very beginning of this chapter, in verse one, he says, my people I want you to practice justice and practice righteousness and then everything else that comes after becomes an expression of that. It becomes, okay, now here's what that looks like. I'm telling you to be just. I'm telling you to be righteous. Here's what that looks like. And then it becomes this explanation of that one verse really getting unpacked now throughout the multiple chapters. So in verse three, right after he calls for justice and righteousness, look at what he says in verse three. Let not the foreigner... In other words, a person from a different nation, a person from a different race. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Okay, so here's what's happening there, right? God is, we're gonna see, is gonna be, he's been throughout Isaiah, he's inviting people from every nation, from every race, to come into his family. He seems dead set on it. Those of you who have been with us through the study of the book of Isaiah, have you noticed that he seems dead set on that? He just keeps repeating it over and over and over. So we're just finding it one more time here again. But one of the concerns perhaps of one of those people who's not Jewish by heritage, because that's the specific group of people God is speaking to here, the person who comes in might think, well, maybe I'm, I'm kind of a, a a um, second, secondary citizen. You know, I'm kind of like, I'm here and I'm a part of the group, but I'm not really a part of the group. I, I'm kind of, I've got a separate status and I'm gonna be in a separate place. And what God is saying right here is to affirm that person or to comfort that person and say, don't say that you will be separated from my people. That will not be the case. You are brought in to be one of my people, right? To be one of my people. It's like when we talked about uh, last week, caring for the vulnerable, right? And one of the things that we saw is that God was saying over and over, you can't care for the vulnerable from a distance. You have to bring them in. God centers his living room around the vulnerable is the way I like to think of it, right? He doesn't keep them at the door and give them a handout. He says, come into my house and sit in the middle of my living room and be part of what goes on in the middle of all that I do. Right? And the same thing here, he says to the foreigner, to the person of a different race, the person of a different nation, he says, no, 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 you're not gonna be separated from my people. Now look what he says in verses six through eight. Don't fear being separated. Now verse six, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants 
Everyone who keeps the Sabbath, we're gonna come back to that Sabbath idea in a minute, and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. Okay, so here's what he's just said, church. He's just said, those who come to me on my terms, here's what this is not. This is not a declaration that no matter what God you worship, you're gonna be good. God will just receive you. He's saying, you, those who come to me on my terms, those who come in the way that I prescribe, those who love the Sabbath and don't profane it, those who love my covenant and keep it, those who love me, when they come, they don't have to worry about being separated because here's what he's gonna say now, verse seven. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So again, we're returning, right? We're returning to this idea throughout, it runs throughout Isaiah and throughout the Old Testament, really, is that God is saying, I, I don't just want one group of people for myself. I want all people for myself. I want people from every background, from every nationality, from every race, every ethnicity. I want to bring them into my family. And you notice that Jesus affirms this because you may have noticed something that Jesus quotes uh, in the New Testament. Remember when Jesus, if you've, if you've read through this part of the Gospels, when Jesus goes into the temple and he drives out the money changers, you guys remember that? He goes in and drives them out. And what does he say? He says, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. In other words, the thing that really ticks him off is that the temple is supposed to be a place where people from every nation can come and encounter the true and living God and meet with him. And they are putting up a barrier and turning it into a profit center. And he wants no part of it. And so he drives them out, right? He says, that's enough. Uh, this is the closest I've ever come to experiencing uh, like the Bible brought to life in my own life. When I was in seminary, I lived in a Jewish synagogue for like the first half of seminary. And they were really gracious to let us live there. And we did work on the property for them. And every year on the high holy days, which is Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, that's like Christmas and Easter for Christians multiplied by a factor of 10. Okay, so it's like the day where everyone who's ever come to the temple at all who is Jewish by heritage will show up on these days. So we would have services at the temple, but we would also uh, rent the local high school, Deerfield High School. We'd rent it, rent out the auditorium so that we could fit everybody who's coming. And of course, uh, Jewish men and women weren't supposed to work on Rosh Hashanah. They weren't supposed to work on Yom Kippur. And so we were Gentiles. We could totally work on Yom Kippur. No big deal, right? <clears throat> so we would, you know, take care of the parking, do all this sort of stuff. Well, <clears throat> I'm at Deerfield High School. I'm standing behind one of the tables and somebody comes up to me that works for the, the synagogue. And they said, we have these prayer books and they're, they're in Hebrew and people often forget to bring theirs and then they can't sing along with the worship. They, you know, kind of like we put the words on the screen. They, they have prayer books and they're singing these prayers and the worship leader is called a cantor and the cantor is gonna sing these songs but if they don't have a prayer book, they won't be able to follow along. So, um, but you can't just hand out the prayer books because what happens every year is people take them and they don't return them. Uh, and so we need you to charge them $20. So you see where this is going, Right. I'm thinking to myself, you want me to charge people, Jewish people, $20 to be able to pray to God in the temple. Jesus is coming in here with a whip of cords and he's driving me out. 
That's just gonna happen. Like I was, I was, and then thankfully they came back and they realized, oh wait, we we're not supposed to exchange money on the Sabbath. Uh, stop taking the $20, to which I said, thank you, you've saved my life. Like the Messiah that I worship is now not going to come and kick me out of Deerfield High School and chase me through the parking lot. That's the way I felt about that moment. The point of that story, right, is Jesus is quoting Isaiah because what he's saying is, God is so dead set on having people of every race worship him and be in his family that when you prevent that, it makes me furious. And Jesus is expressing the heart of God with his actions to display how God feels about what is taking place when people put barriers up between God and the people that he desires to redeem. People from all nations, people from every place, so now here, here's a question that's worth asking, right? If Isaiah has made it so evident to us, so evident to us that this is God's heart, then the question we might want to ask is, well, why is God so adamant about that? Like, why is that such a big deal? I mean, remember, in the ancient Near East, you have all these nations that worship different gods, right? So you've got Baal, and you've got Asherah, and you've got Molech, and you've got, you know, all these different deities, and essentially these nations go to war with one another, and when they go to war, they're just proving whose God is stronger. That's the mindset. Like, if we defeat you, our God is stronger, right? And no, none of these gods have any declaration that they're interested in winning people from other nations to them. They're totally content to be the God of that nation. This is my people. They worship me, and they're marked by the worship of me, and we will just conquer all the other people's. That's all we're interested in. We'll just conquer the other peoples. And here you have now the God of Israel coming into the equation and saying, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not so interested in just declaring that I'm the God of Israel. I'm interested in declaring that I'm the God of every nation. And I want people from everywhere to worship me, which is very unique in this setting, right? This is not just like, not all the foreign gods that were worshipped and thought of thought, were thought to think this way. Does that make sense? So a couple of thoughts on why God seems to be so adamant about this. The first is what I just said. I think the first reason God is so adamant about diversity is that God is reminding us that he is not the God of one people, but of all people. I mean, God is dead set, I think, on winning people from every people group because he wants there to be an understanding that he is not the God of just one people. He is the God of all people. The second thing I would say is this, and these are the ones I really want you to get. They're a little bit maybe harder to follow, but just kind of stick with me. The second thing I think we see is that the reason he is so adamant about this is because he wants to show us that justice and righteousness are his greater aim. Now, in other words, here's what I mean, right? It means that diversity is not an end unto itself. And this is the way the world thinks about diversity, I think, is they think diversity is, is the goal in and of itself, but diversity is not God's goal. Justice and righteousness are God's goal. And diversity is an expression of justice and righteousness. That's what he's saying here, actually, in Isaiah 56. I don't know if you caught it. He says, people from every nation are gonna come, and those who love justice and love righteousness and keep my covenant, those who show that they love me and keep the Sabbath and obey my commands, those are the ones that will be received into my house. Well, why is that such a powerful display? Here's what it is. It's God declaring that you don't get into my family, you don't get into my kingdom just by being from a certain ethnic background, just by being an Israelite. You get in by showing that you have my heart and you love me. And the way you show that is by practicing and obeying my commands. 
You practice justice and righteousness. In other words, what God is saying is, all those who are truly mine will practice justice and righteousness. And diversity becomes a way that that gets expressed. Because when you've got a, a homogenous group of people, it's easy to say, oh, this is the group of people that, this is the group of people that God declares are his. But when you have a diverse group of people, you can't just go, oh, it's because they're this or because they're that. There must be something deeper that makes them God's people. What is that something deeper? And the thing that's deeper is the justice and righteousness that marks God's people. And diversity becomes an expression of that. Racial diversity becomes an expression of that. Ethnic diversity becomes an expression of that. Socioeconomic diversity becomes an expression of that. God values diversity because he values justice and righteousness, not just because he values diversity. You with me? Here's what that means. A friend shared this with me. I thought it was, it was wisdom. Here's what that means. Is there are a lot of, I think, I think there are a lot of probably churches that would pursue being more diverse, right? And that's not bad. That's, that's good. But they pursue it as a, without any eye to the fact that that diversity is meant to be an expression of justice and righteousness. And so they pursue it and yet go about the way they operate in the world without being concerned for justice and righteousness and satisfy themselves with just having a diverse expression of population rather than saying what this diverse expression of population forces us to do is to take into deep consideration where our brothers and sisters from a different racial background are being oppressed and injustice is being done against them and we as a church have to stand up and speak for justice and for righteousness. That's true diversity because that is aimed at what God is aiming at when he aims for diversity. That's what Isaiah 56 is getting at. The reason God loves diversity is because he loves justice and righteousness. And you can't just put a blanket of diversity on yourself and act as if it's okay to not practice justice and to not practice righteousness because it's not truly God's heart around diversity. Now, when someone shared that with me, it hit me like a ton of bricks because I just was thinking about diversity for diversity's sake, if I was honest. And this friend challenged me and said, if your church grows more diverse, are you going to grow more just and more righteous? Or are you gonna be content to just be diverse? Now here's the good thing. Here's what I think, and I could be wrong about this, but my presumption is, as we aim more and more at justice and righteousness, we'll get the fruit of diversity. Right? Aim at first things first and you'll get second things. Aim at second things first and you won't get second things or first things. Third reason I think that diversity, this God seems so adamant about this, is because he wants to show that salvation comes through faith and not works. And you might think, well, how does, how does, that, how does a diverse church show that? Flip over to Galatians chapter three and I'll show you. And we'll have the words on the screen here as well. But Galatians chapter three says this. <clears throat> and Paul is talking in Galatians about the fact that all who have come to faith in Christ, now they don't need to follow the law. There was this teaching that was going forward. Like if you're going to uh, be a follower of Jesus, you also have to follow the Old Testament law. And Paul's arguing against that. He's saying no, because that would be to, to say that we're saved by believing and also by works or just really by works, right? And he goes, that's not how you're saved. Therefore, you don't have to follow the Old Testament law. And here's how he says it in chapter three, verse 23. It says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, 
imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. In other words, what he's saying is what he's been saying all throughout Galatians. The purpose of the law was to show you that you could never be good enough to get God's approval or to get his love, to be saved by him. You need someone to do it for you. And so salvation is not by your ability to keep the rules. And he's saying that that law was, it was our guardian. It held us captive until Christ came, who then opened the door, the possibility to be saved, not by works, but by faith. And that's what he's talking about. And then he goes to verse 25, says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Okay, so he's making a pretty strong argument there that salvation is by faith, not by works. And then verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, after all this discussion of salvation is by faith, it's not by works, you don't have to keep the law. And he's explained all that. What's the very next thing he's gonna say in verse 28? There is neither Jew nor Greek. In other words, two people of different races. There is neither slave nor free, two people from very different social standings and economic statuses. There is neither male nor female. We're pretty different, right? For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now here, Paul, is, is he denying that there is such a thing as a male and a female? Of course not. Is he denying that there is such a thing as an ethnically Jewish person and an ethnically Gentile person? No, of course not. Is he denying there's such thing as a slave and a free person? No, but what he is saying is because salvation is by faith and not by works, then people of all types coming together testifies to that reality. The fact that a Jew and a Gentile can both be considered one in Christ Jesus or a slave and a free person can both be considered one in Christ Jesus shows you, testifies to the fact that salvation is not earned because if it's earned then your slavery or your freedom become a testimony for how good or how bad you were if it's earned then the person who is Jewish says I have the law I can keep it and you're in trouble but because it's not earned it's by faith people of all types now are brought in and so it's the diversity of those very people that are brought in that testifies to the reality that is at the heart of the gospel that our salvation is not earned, but it is given as a free gift for faith. And diversity testifies to that. Do you see it? A diverse church in a racially divided time testifies to the very heart of the gospel that salvation is by faith, not by works. A diverse church testifies not only that, but that God's heart is for justice and for righteousness. And it also testifies that God is not the God of one people, but the God of all people. Now we could go on and on, but are those three decent reasons why God seems so adamant about this? All right, let's look at the next thing. All right, that was hard. This next one's easy. Embrace biblical sexuality. Okay, it's just waiting. Well, actually, you know what? I'm sorry. I jumped ahead of myself. Let me, let me give a couple practical things on this idea of diversity before I do that. I promise, we'll get through. Don't worry. A couple things that I think are important for us to remember, okay? 
helpful guides kind of to think through our motives and, and where your mind is. I've, I've been mulling these things over. And here, a couple things that I think are helpful, have been for me, I think will be for you. Number one is we have to learn to take more pleasure in our head. If we're gonna grow in diversity and be about justice and righteousness, we have to learn to take more pleasure in our heavenly citizenship than in our American citizenship. Because here's what happens. I, I know we all say amen to that because we get it. That's the right thing to say. But let me tell you where that, how that fleshes itself out. I think, I think how that fleshes itself out is it's not wrong to be happy to be an American, okay? I'm happy to be an American. This is people group that God placed me in. That's great, right? It is not better or worse than some other group of people because God is the God of all nations, right? He declares that he is the God of all nations. And here's the thing that I find is when I'm delighting more in my American citizenship than I am in my heavenly citizenship, I will excuse injustices of the political party with which I affiliate most. And I will baptize my political party as if it and Christianity are one and the same thing. And it is not. Far from it. And my friends, here's what I wanna say to, I know some of you are probably dyed in the wool Republicans, some of you maybe dyed in the wool Democrat, I don't know. But what I wanna say is this, is if you can't identify areas where your political party is not aligned with gospel thinking, then you have baptized your political party. Because neither one aligns with the gospel at every point. There are ways that they have all departed from the, sake, from the message of the gospel. And it's when, we learn, it's when we learn to value our heavenly citizenship over and above our American citizenship that we will begin to practice justice and righteousness and speak on behalf of those. Some of the, I would say some of the times we don't speak on behalf of brothers and sisters for whom we need to speak up. We don't do it because to do so would be to disaffiliate in some way from our political party. We would feel a disallegiance from that political party. And I would say, then disaffiliate. If it gets in the way of your heavenly citizenship and of speaking on behalf of justice and righteousness for the sake of the gospel, then chuck the political party and own the kingdom of God. The second thing I'd say, just practically, is we have to learn to yield formal and informal authority to a diverse group of people in our lives. This may be as simple as asking the perspective of someone from a different background than mine on an issue and letting it actually inform my decision making. And then kind of tied to that, we have to learn to listen to the harder aspects of someone else's cultural experience. We like cultural diversity when it comes to learning about, I think, um, different cultural backgrounds and histories and like food and you know cultural practices, but when brothers and sisters who begin to speak about the harder aspects of growing up in this context with their racial background, begin to speak to us about that, we get real defensive and real dismissive, I find. And something I see in myself is I will very quickly try and explain away someone's experience that was negative rather than attribute it to the reality of injustice done against them. I will get defensive for my own people group and I will find a way to dismiss what is said and that is sin on my part to have done that. It is sin and it is wrong. Sin when I do it, my friends, it's sin when you do it. We have to learn to invite and listen to the harder cultural experiences of people from different backgrounds than us, not just the nice fun stuff like I like the food you bring to the table but to actually say, what, you know, what has that been like? And to not become defensive and to not be dismissive. 
I'm learning to become a better listener. I'm learning to become, believe it or not, right? I'm learning to become a better listener. Join me. Okay, embrace biblical sexuality. Look at uh, Isaiah 57, verse seven and eight. And these, two, these first two are a little bit longer than the, the last three. But Isaiah 57, seven and eight. Now we saw last week about this idea of that the immoral sexual practices of God's people that they were picking up from the nations around them were leading to harming children. There was, there was all manner of difficulty going on. And then in verse seven and eight of chapter 57, it says, on a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial. For deserting me, you have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide and you have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on nakedness. That's a pretty overt phrase, isn't it? Here's what God is talking about in those, in those verses. He is tying together their sexually immoral practices, his people's sexually immoral practices, with their idolatry. And he is pointing out the reality that always seems to be true throughout all of human history, that when we worship false gods, there's almost always a degradation of the sexual practices of God's people as a result of the worship of false gods. Now here, in this context, it's specific gods of the nations around them that they're beginning to worship, and so they're taking on these idolatrous practices, and it's leading to sexually immoral practices. And in some cases, there was actually uh, cultic practices in these false religions that required certain sexually immoral practices, right? So you can see how there's a tie there, especially in the Old Testament context, in the ancient Near East context. But friends, I wanna tell you that the same thing is still true today. The same thing is still true today. Sexual immorality is always tied to idolatry. You see, when we practice anything outside of God's prescription for sexuality, any version of it, whether it be looking at pornography, whether it be adultery against our wife, whether it be same-sex sexual practice, anything outside of God's prescription for sexuality and the flourishing of his people in that, any practice outside of that is idolatry. It's an expression of worship of a false God. Just like it was in Isaiah, it is today. More often than not, that God is ourselves. We live in a culture that is incredibly sexually permissive. The concept essentially is this. Anything I desire, I should be able to do. Right? If I feel a desire for this thing, no one should be able to tell me that I should be limited from practicing that thing that I desire. That's essentially the sexual ethic of our cultural day and age. Here's the trouble with that. Here's the problem, right? Is that that is essentially an exaltation of self over and above what God has prescribed for us in this area, which is to say, I don't wanna worship you. I wanna worship who? Me, Right? Now, and this is incredibly challenging when it comes to thinking about, okay, um, God's standard, right? So the biblical standard is, that, is just, is so, it's simple, right? Sex between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage is God's prescription for sexual flourishing and thriving for a group of people, for individuals and for a culture. That is his prescription which causes people to flourish. And would you agree that sexuality is close to the center of our personhood? That there's something about our sexuality that is very much connected to our ability to thrive in life and to flourish. It, it literally is a part of creating life and families and creating cultural, uh, cultural 
manifestations in our world. And so, you know, sexuality is, is a, an important part of life. But the thing that we need to understand is that practicing things outside of God's prescribed reality is not just kind of a minor infraction, right? When I look at that computer screen, that thing I shouldn't look at, it's not just a minor infraction of a protocol. It is idolatry. I am worshiping a false God when I do that. And that God is me. Now, here's the thing. Here's why it's so important for a church to uphold a biblical sexual ethic because I don't know if you've noticed this, but this is, I'm saying that in order to be effective, making that Isaiah 55 invitation to people, come, come, come to the table of God. In order to do that, you have to uphold a biblical sexual ethic. But many, many churches are doing the exact opposite. They are proclaiming things to be good and righteous and just in the arena of sexuality in order to, they think, make themselves more effective at being able to make an invitation. Because if I say this is not okay, then those people won't come. But if I say God has a prescription for sexuality and it's this, and these things are outside the boundaries, then you get that that seems off-putting. But here's the problem. When we do that, if what I've just said is correct, that any sexual practice outside of God, the boundaries that God gives us, which is not to prevent us from enjoying ourselves, but it is to allow us to flourish, right? Is God good and are his ways good? Yes. If it's true that any expression outside of God's mandate is idolatry, then when we permit those things and call them good, when in fact God says they are not good, we are reinforcing self-worship among ourselves and we are degrading the image of God in God's people. How effective can we be at inviting people to the table of God if we degrade their very identity as people made in the image of God by what we teach about their sexuality? The only way to be effective is to hold God's standard on this subject. And it seems counterintuitive. It seems like that will make you less able to invite people. But my friends, I want to tell you, most of God's ways are counterintuitive. The only way to be effective is to hold to God's standard. Now, a couple thoughts on that. Like, how does a church a community, create a counterculture in this area of sexuality. And there's so many things that can be said here. I'm just gonna say a few. And I think one of the most important ones is this. We have to celebrate the call of singleness and the chastity that, co- that goes with it as a high calling rather than as a lesser calling. Here's what happens in the church all the time, right? Is that those who are married speak to those who are single as if someday you will be a whole person. That is incredibly damaging. Not only is it incredibly damaging, it's incredibly unbiblical because 1 Corinthians 7 talks to us very straightforwardly about the idea that those who are called into singleness have an ability to minister the gospel in a way that I do not as a married man. They have a freedom and an opportunity that God has designed. And is marriage good? Yes. But is singleness also a good and high calling in the kingdom of God? Yes, absolutely. Remember that singleness has always been meant to testify to the fact that one, God is enough for us. That he is our true and better spouse. And singleness has always been meant in the new covenant because Christ has come and he has created a family of faith. Singleness is, uh, the gospel 
testifies through singleness that the family of the church, the people of God, is our true and better family, even more so than our biological families of origin. Did you know that? This is more your real family than the biological family from which you come. That's not to degrade our biological families. Those are good things too. We should uphold those and work for their benefit and blessing. But this is your true family. This is it. That's what the gospel does. It creates. And so singleness now becomes a testimony to that reality. I may never, remember the discussion of the eunuch last week and all the stuff that we looked at. I won't go back over it, right? But singleness is incredibly important in the kingdom of God. And when we speak to our brothers and sisters who are single as if, well, one day, one day, you'll really have what you need to make an impact for the kingdom. We are fools when we speak that way. So we have to, we have to uphold as a high calling the value of singleness. And that means a couple things, right? Like not making comments, like I just said, that convey that one day you'll have a full life. Expecting to learn from our brothers and sisters who are single. This happens a lot too, I find, in the church. That those of us who are married put ourselves in a position of teaching those who are single rather than expecting to learn from our brothers and sisters who are single. But if what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7 is true, that there's an impact and an opportunity for the gospel that is afforded by singleness, that is not afforded by marriage, then should I have something really important to learn from my single brothers and sisters? Yes, because they are able to do something I cannot do. So I better expect to learn from them rather than to always approach them as if they need to learn something from me. Not isolating ourselves in bubbles of singleness and marriage, but living life together. And this applies to both, right? Whether we're single or married. I think a lot of times, um, I've, a lot of my single friends, I think sometimes they, they um, it can be hard sometimes to engage around married people. Some of that's on us, but I would say some of that is on them as well. And so there has to be this way of getting beyond our marital status as the this sort of the key that unlocks the door through which we'll relate to one another. Right? That, by the way, is just a reinforcement that I'm pretty selfish and I only want to be around people who can speak to my specific experience in life. Rather than saying, oh, I would love to learn from the different experience and to have that inform the kind of way I think about life and move through it. So not isolating ourselves in those bubbles. And I will say that I think that in particular, that last thing of that non-isolation is incredibly important for those of our brothers and sisters who experience same-sex attraction. That that's the, the reality of their experience, right? Because think about this for a moment, right? The person who experiences same-sex attraction If God does not reorient that desire, and he can and he does, but if God does not reorient that desire, then they will remain single. And if they're gonna be faithful to God, that will mean mean remaining single and being chaste, being celibate. That is a hard calling and that is a high calling. And I don't know of any way to actually practice that calling unless you have a church family that surrounds you and invites you in and says, come into the center of my living room and sit at my table. You have a place here with us always. You belong here. We all long for intimacy. We all long for family. We all long for somebody to say, I know you, right? I see you and I know you. We long for that. And if you'll never have that in marriage, then you better find it in your church family because you're not going to find it elsewhere. 
or you'll run off to find a cheap substitute for it. But we have to give something that is better than the cheap substitute. If we're going to call same-sex practice sin, which is what the Bible calls it, then we better also say those of you who experience same-sex attraction have a place to be welcomed and loved here with us so that you might walk in God's truth and according to his standard, and we will walk with you. Last thing I wanna point out about singleness, and I want you to remember this, is that um, you know, there's such intentionality in holding a biblical sexual ethic. And one of the important things about that is to, one of the important things to remember about that is to remember when it comes to singleness in particular, that our society really values singleness. I mean, people get married at later and later ages. People tend to want to remain single or they just want to live together and not get married so that they're still clinging to some version of singleness while also being in a relationship, kind of trying to have both together somehow. But the reality is this, friends. The, the world values singleness because they value their autonomy more than they value making that long-term commitment, right? I, I want to still have certain amount of freedom and autonomy. So that's where the valuation of singleness comes in our culture. But we should value singleness for a completely opposite reason. We should value singleness in the church because we value it for the sake of the kingdom and for, the, for what it brings about for God's people and how it can be utilized to see God's kingdom come to fruition. That's very different than valuing singleness for the sake of autonomy. And the way we think about singleness and the way we speak about it should be very different than the way our world thinks and speaks about singleness. And one of our knee-jerk reactions is we see our culture loving singleness for the sake of autonomy is that we start to kind of yell and shout about the value of the family. And the family is good, but what we do sometimes is we dismiss the value of singleness as if singleness belongs to the world and marriage belongs to the church. And that is false. We're greedy. They both belong to us, Okay. I mean, they belong to God. They're his idea. And singleness has immense value and marriage has immense value. The other thing you can do, by the way, in terms of creating a biblical sexual ethic is, particularly in, in your family settings, is please, please, uh, moms and dads, husbands and wives, be intentional about figuring out ways to speak about the goodness of sexuality to your kids. To not hide it or act as if it's, something that's, to be, that's shameful, but to, but to speak about the goodness of it, to raise them in the belief that sexuality within the boundaries that God has created is, is good. It is so good. One of the, I, I taught sex education in the public schools in Austin for a little while as a part of this organization. I was a part of it. My favorite illustration that I ever took away from that, you can imagine how well that went sometimes, teaching that. It's interesting. But one of the things that always seemed to grip people, and it gripped my head, was in describing God's desire for us to flourish in sexuality, was to say, you know, fire is really a great thing when you put it in a fireplace. It gives warmth and light to a house. It makes it a homey, right? You want to be there. You, those cold nights around the fireplace, don't you love those? That fire becomes a really great thing. You take that same fire, you put it in the middle of your living room, and you've got a problem, right? Context. Boundaries, right? Boundaries create flourishing. Fire in the fireplace, flourishing. Fire in the middle of the living room, destruction. Very helpful reminder for me. Okay, let's move to number five. Oh, not number five. Six. 
practice spiritual rhythms that create margin. Look at Isaiah 56, or no, sorry, 58, verse 13 and 14. Now in chapter 56, in verse two, in verse four, in verse six, he alludes to this idea of Sabbath. He says it multiple times. He says the eunuch who practices the Sabbath, the foreigner who practices the Sabbath. He says, I want my people to practice the Sabbath. So he keeps going to this again and again. What's interesting is he's using the idea of Sabbath really as an illustration for someone who is keeping his law, someone who's obeying his covenant, but he chooses to use the Sabbath as the specific expression of what it would look like to be someone who wants to love and obey God. And the question goes, well, why that one, right? Why is he going back to the Sabbath over and over again as opposed to any one of the other 10 commandments? Like, why is he not saying the one who does not murder? Why is he saying the one who does not steal? The one who does not worship false light? He could say any of the 10 commandments. He chooses the Sabbath over and over again here. Look at verse, uh, chapter 58, verse 13 and 14. It says, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure, or another translation would be your business, on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." So again, this is, he's using Sabbath as this tangible expression of people who love and want to obey him. So why is Sabbath keeping so important to God? I'm gonna give a couple thoughts on that. The first is that living life with rhythms of work and rest shows that we trust God to provide. That's really what the Sabbath is all about. It's about rhythms of work and then rest. Work and then rest. Well, why does God value that? Because when we work and then choose to rest, what we're saying is, I've been working hard, but I'm not ultimately the one that provides for me. It's God that provides for me. And when I stop and pause and I don't work and I don't earn, right, I don't produce, what happens is I am forced to, to come to the reality of, okay, I'm not earning today. I'm not earning my living. I'm not putting a roof over my head today. Who is the one that's doing it? It's God that is doing it. And so that rest reinforces a God-centered perspective of our work that he is actually the one providing even while we work hard. The second reason God seems to value Sabbath so much is that it shows us, it shows that we believe flourishing happens inside of God, not apart from him, right? So you can imagine a life that is consumed by work. This just work, 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 work all the way constantly, right? And if that same person says to you, do you know where value and, and, and um, meaning is found in life? And they said, God, would you believe them? No, you'd go, your life tells me that value and meaning are found in work because you work 10 hours a day, seven days a week. It's all you do. That's apparently where value is found in life. But when someone has a rhythm of work and rest, work and rest, what that communicates is value in life is found in God, not apart from him. So he informs the way I work, how much I work, when I work, the work I do, how I do it. He informs all that about work, but then I return to rest in him. And when I do that, it is a reminder and a display that the true value and meaning in life is found in God. Do you, you see that, church? Yes? Okay, fantastic. So some thoughts on creating spiritual rhythms. Just a few. One, I wanna encourage you, reject the myth of balance. This is one I find a lot with people. When a mentor shared this with me, I thought it was so helpful. And I realized I had been doing this as well, that we have these categories of life, like family, 
uh, or marriage, my kids, my work, my quiet times, my this, my that, my scripture memory, my, and I've got this whole list of things. And I just think someday I'm gonna get all these balanced just right. Have you ever felt that way? One of these days, some of you are like, no, I've never thought that. I've never even tried. It's <laughs> obvious, you're a dummy. Why did you think that could happen? Well, I thought it could happen. And I thought, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get all this balanced one of these days. And when I do, boy, life's gonna be sweet. And this mentor, he's so encouraging. He said, no, you need to think in terms of rhythm. Sometimes in certain seasons of life, you need more of one thing and less of another. And then in other seasons, you'll need more of that thing you needed less of before and more of the other. Like, you need to think through rhythms in life and get rid of the idea of trying to get somehow all these things balanced. They will, let me just, they will never get there. You will never balance them all, right? Another, another thing a friend told me when I was, I was really concerned about kind of just trying to get it all together, you know, and thinking about, in particular thinking about my kids and thinking about like, well, I, I need to do this, I need to do this, I need to do this, I need to do this. And he said, Trent, you need to worry less about the watering schedule and more about the fruit. I thought it was really good. What he's saying is examine the fruit. And if the fruit is good, don't change the watering schedule. Because what happens is I would think to myself, the watering schedule, I've got to do all these things and then I'll produce great kids, right? And some of you are like, yeah, we tried all those things. It didn't work, <laughs> right? I'll do all these things and then it'll produce great kids. But I'm, I wasn't examining the fruit of what I was doing. And so the question is, if I'm examining the fruit of what's taking place in my kid's life and, it, and it's not good fruit, then yeah, I need to change the watering schedule. But I don't need to change the watering schedule if the fruit is good. And sometimes it's like, well, I need to add a couple watering times. It's like, is it producing good fruit? Look at the results, right? That was helpful to me in terms of creating rhythms instead of trying to feel like I had everything balanced all the time, which seemed like a myth. The other thing I would say is this. Now, please listen to me. I wanna to talk to those of you who are parents here for a second. It is a powerful testimony of the value of God and of the gospel for you to not do things that interrupt the spiritual rhythms that you have set as a family. I'll give you a primary example. When your sports activity conflicts with coming to church on Sunday, you should not go to the sports activity. You should come to church. Now, that's just one example, right? There's a lot. You could say our, one of our rhythms is that we're gonna be very committed to sort of having downtime on Saturday morning, and that's, that's family breakfast time, whatever. Whatever your rhythm is, right? Think about this. If you, the reality is here's what most of us do is we just go, well, you know, we committed to this team and we wanna teach our kids to fulfill their commitments. Your greater commitment is to God and the church. And when you communicate to your kid that like, it's okay, it's okay. Like, we don't need to go to, to gather with the people of God to worship because we've got a soccer game. What you are saying is that this is more valuable than that. I would encourage you in terms of creating margin and setting rhythms that create margin, that you will do greater good for your kid and greater good for the sake of the gospel in the lives of those teammates when you say, I'm sorry, we can't be here on that day because our family has a practice and we don't interrupt that practice. It's our priority. And this comes underneath that and behind it. And we, yes, is commitment a good thing? Is hard work a good thing? Yes, absolutely. You should be committed to the things that you, you know, commit to. But when they interrupt with the greater commitment, you should forego the lesser thing. Last thing I'll say is this. When, you, when you're creating your rhythms, don't just rest from work. Rest from consumption. 
Don't just rest from work, rest from consumption. I'll give you a good recommendation here. Andy Crouch has written a book called The TechWise Family. We're looking at it and trying to institute some of those principles in our home. It's been incredibly helpful. Just as an example, one of the things that he argues for is that we should rest from technology. We should fast from technology uh, one hour a day, one day a week, and one week a year to have no consumption of technology and to focus on both creating a home where we're producing things that are meaningful, but also resting in God in those times. I found that to be really challenging and really helpful. Uh, So number seven now, be great neighbors. Be great neighbors. So in Isaiah 59, one through eight, I'm not gonna read it to you for the sake of time here, but I'll just share it with you this way. In Isaiah 59, one through eight, what Isaiah points out is that the people of God are taking people to, to the court unjustly. They, he says you have blood on your hands. They are, their mouths are filled with lies. In other words, he's saying the mark of someone who does not love God or is not walking with God is that they do injustice against other people, right? Their mouth is filled with lies. Their fingers are stained with blood. These are pretty graphic images he uses. The opposite of that way of life, the opposite of the way of life that involves harming other people would be to show hospitality to other people, would be to be a great neighbor to other people. So let me share a few thoughts with you about that in terms of neighboring. And again, I said in the first week of this that I think people who have the gift of hospitality are actually going to be the most effective purveyors of the gospel in this coming generation, more so than great teachers, more so than great evangelists. I think it's gonna be people who know how to show hospitality and create warmth and openness in their home that will make a greater impact for the gospel than probably maybe all of us combined. Right, so a couple thoughts on hospitality and on being a great neighbor. Number one, keep the garage door up. Just, I know, it's super easy, right? Just pull in and don't immediately slam that door down. Just keep it. You'll be amazed at the conversations that happen when the garage door stays up. And you just wander outside that garage for just a second before shuttling into the house. Number two, think of creative ways to make your home a place of peace for the neighbor. That's what he says at the end of those verses in chapter 59. He says, you don't know the path of peace. And so what hospitality is, is it's showing people what peace looks like, Right? And figure out a way to make, figure out creative ways to make your home a place of peace for the entire neighborhood. One of the best expressions of that I, I have heard is uh, a group of people who I know have said, "Okay, in our home, in our neighborhood, every Saturday, second Saturday of every month is Soup Saturday. So anyone who wants to come, it's wide open. You don't have to RSVP. You just show up. We'll have soup, and you can bring anything else you want to add to it. Some people bring bread. Some people bring crackers. Some people bring cheese. Some people, you know, whatever. I'm bringing a dessert." No one RSVPs, no one says what they're bringing, they just show up. But what has happened? Those people's home has become a center for peace in their neighborhood. Right? And some of you are thinking, have you seen my house? It can never be a center for peace, right? <laughs> I have three young kids. Peace and chaos can go hand in hand, I promise. Peace and rest of soul, chaotic outside, Right? Okay, last thing. Oh, on that, by the way, also lend your stuff to your neighbors. If your stuff is not getting broken, you're not using it right. I'm serious. Your tools should get broken. That's just the way it should work. That doesn't mean don't instruct your neighbor on how to use the chainsaw because he's gonna cut his leg off, maybe. Last one, practice disciplines of denial. 
And this goes hand in hand with what we talked about uh, with the rest and the cycles of rest. But let me just say this on the disciplines of denial side. In Isaiah 56, nine through 12, what happens is the leaders are having these lives where they're just constantly drunk and going from party to party. And God is saying, you have grown deaf to my ways. Like you, you don't hear me, you don't know me, you can't lead my people because your whole life revolves around consuming things. You're just going from like, what can I, I can eat this, I can drink that, I can take this, I can take that. Just over and over and over and over again. He says, you have grown to be fools. You don't understand me, you can't represent me. Here's the thing, in a materialistic society, friends, if God's people consume in the same ways that the world consumes, we will not have the wisdom we need to pass on to give a different version of life and meaning to others. We have to not consume in the ways that the culture around us consumes. To think very differently about that. Now, that's why I think an important discipline for us is the discipline of fasting. The discipline of fasting is an important discipline for God's people in this season of life. And I'll tell you why, a couple of reasons. Fasting reminds us that God's word is our true food. Fasting prevents the things that we consume from becoming our masters. So consumption is a part of life. We're gonna consume food. We're gonna consume drink. We're gonna consume entertainment at points. The key is to not let it consume you as you consume it. And fasting recenters our perspective about what a good life is around God. Here's my promise to you. If you will take up the discipline of fasting, not in some legalistic fashion, but if you'll just take it up as something that God calls us to and begin to practice it, you will find that your hunger for God grows and your hunger for the things of the world lessens. It just will because you're obeying God you're seeking him as you're praying and fasting. And as you do that, your hunger for him grows and it recenters your perspective about what is meaningful in life where he's at the center and not the things that you consume, not the things of the world. So the discipline of fasting is incredibly important. Okay, here's the difference between a moralistic sermon where the pastor tells you, do all these things and a gospel sermon. At the end of these chapters in Isaiah 59, God looks around and he says, I don't see anyone who's doing any of this. So here's what I'm gonna do. Isaiah 59, 20, I'm gonna send a redeemer. I'm gonna send a redeemer. And because of what he does, he will shape my people into who I want them to be. Our trust and our hope is not in trying really hard to be the kinds of people that Isaiah 56 to 59 describes. Our hope and our trust is that God has promised to make us this type of people. And our right response is not to say, great, well, I don't have to do anything then. Our right response is to say, let me run hard after these things because you have promised to make me these things. Our hope is not in our ability. It's in a God who's so good that he would send a redeemer. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. And we're gonna sing now to you. And we pray that what we sing would come from our hearts directly to your heart. We're gonna sing that we need you. And that is so true. You are our redeemer. We don't want moralism, we want you. And we want you to shape us and change us and make us who you want us to be, both individually and together. So help us now, help us. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.